Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 26, Mankind's Story is a Quest. And in this episode, we're going to have a little bit of fun with a book, a fantastic little book that I've recently come across called How to Read Literature Like a Professor for Kids. And to use this book to look at the Bible not only as the most beautiful work of literature ever produced, but one that actually allows us to get behind the story of the Bible and to capture some themes and to recognize some patterns that show up in the Bible as a great work of literature, but one that is ultimately leading us to a destination that only God could bring us to. And so I'm going to read for you a little bit from this book as we talk about these themes, and I'm really excited to get right into it. So here we go. Over the past few podcasts, you've heard me allude to a handful of times that the biblical story clearly involves you and it involves me, but it is not primarily about you or about me. And we, we talked a little bit about how it is about another culture or another church or another group of people who happen to be God's covenant people. But as we looked at with the Kingdom of God podcast and then the one about the three levels of scripture, it's important to remember these these layers of meaning, if you will, as you're reading, because you can see how humanity as a whole was tasked with a calling, and then Israel as God's covenant people are a slice of this all humanity, and then how Jesus himself is a slice of God's covenant people, representing them no less, and doing better than they could at the very same tasks, but he's also a human being, and so he's also a representative of all mankind. And you can see then how any follower of God, you, me, your 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 spouse, your kids, your pastor, your your next door neighbor, if he happens to be a Christian, any follower of God can be themselves one of God's covenant people, level two, and a member of the human race, all three levels, all at the exact same time. And so keeping these categories distinct and yet connected is absolutely crucial to reading scripture rightly. And this is how we are able to read portions of scripture that were not addressed to us, but can also be written For us, because we too are part in Christ of God's covenant people and can relate to Him as such. And we all, regardless of our position and relationship with Jesus, are ultimately part of all humanity. And so when we look at these levels, what what I'd like to do today in this episode is I'd like to read for you the first chapter of a fantastic little book called How to Read Literature Like a Professor for kids. And the reason why I want to do this and give a little disclaimer before we start, but the Bible itself is the world's greatest piece of literature. And I know there is a lot of talk about the Bible being inspired from God, and and that allows some people to conclude that the Bible is, is its own thing, separate from the way literature actually comes to us in written form. And I actually don't adopt that perspective. I, I think that that um, removes the 
the fact that we are human beings made in the image of God and it almost makes the Bible appear as if it came to us sort of like through a golden tube and God bypasses humanity in order to present to us the truth of his word. And I really don't think that he does that. I think that the reason why literature in the world is a powerful force and can be used for good or bad is because I think human beings latch on to the beauties of literature and what it can accomplish. And I think you'll understand what I'm talking about after I read this first chapter. It is not very long, and I know this is a bit out of the norm from the podcast, but hopefully it will be as helpful to you as it's proven to be to me. But when I'm finished reading it, I'll make some observations, and I think it will clear up for you exactly the reason why I've chosen to to read this. And so here we go, chapter one in this book. And if you go to the show notes at the bottom of this episode where you've downloaded it, you'll see a link there to Amazon where you could buy the book if you so choose, or you could look up the table of contents to see what else is in the book. But this is chapter one, and it is called Every Trip is a Quest, Except When It's Not. And here it is. Okay, so here's the deal. Let's say you were reading a book about an average 16-year-old kid in the summer of 1968. The kid, let's call him Kip Smith, who hopes his acne clears up before he gets drafted, is on his way to the A&P to get a loaf of bread. His bike is a one-speed with a coaster brake and therefore very embarrassing to ride, and riding it to run an errand for his mother makes it worse. Along the way, he has a couple of disturbing experiences, including an unpleasant encounter with a German shepherd. And it's all topped off in the supermarket parking lot when he sees the girl of his dreams, Karen, laughing and fooling around in Tony Vauxhall's brand new car, a Barracuda. Now, Kip hates Tony already because he's got a name like Vauxhall and not Smith, and because the Barracuda is bright green and goes approximately the speed of light, And also because Tony has never had to work a day in his life. Karen, who is laughing and having a great time, turns and sees Kip, who asked her out not so long ago, and she keeps laughing. Kip goes on into the store to buy the loaf of Wonder Bread that his mother told him to pick up. As he reaches for the bread, he decides right then and there to lie about his age to the Marine recruiter, even though it means going to Vietnam because nothing will ever happen to him if he stays in this one-horse town where the only thing that matters is how much money your father has. What just happened here? If you were an English teacher and not even a particularly weird English teacher, you'd know that you'd just watched a knight have an encounter with his enemy. In other words, a quest just happened. But it just looked like a trip to the store for some white bread. True, But think about it. What is a quest made of? A knight, a dangerous road, a holy grail, at least one dragon, one evil knight, one princess. Sounds about right? That's a list I can live with. We've got a knight named Kip, a dangerous road, nasty German shepherd, a holy grail, a loaf of wonder bread, at least one dragon, trust me, a 68 Barracuda could definitely breathe fire, One evil knight, Tony, one princess, Karen. Seems like a bit of a stretch. At first, sure, but let's think about what a quest is made of. It needs five things. One, a quester. Two, a place to go. Three, 
a stated reason to go there. Four, challenges and trials along the way. Five, a real reason to go there. Item one is easy. A quester is just a person who goes on a quest, whether or not he knows it's a quest. In fact, he usually doesn't know. Items two and three go together. Someone tells our main character, our hero, to go somewhere and do something. Go in search of the Holy Grail. Go to the store for some bread. Go to Mount Doom and throw in a ring. Go there. Do that. Now remember that I said the stated reason for the quest. That's because of item number five. The real reason for the quest is never the same as the stated reason. In fact, more often than not, the quester fails at the stated task. Frodo makes it all the way to Mount Doom, but does he throw the ring in the fire? No, he does not. Really? Go read it again if you don't believe me. So why do heroes go on these quests and why do we care? They go because of the stated task, believing that it is their real mission. We know, however, that their quest is educational. They don't know enough about the only subject that really matters, themselves. The real reason for a quest is always self-knowledge. Frodo may have saved the world from Sauron, but that really just turned out to be a bit of luck. What his quest actually brings him is a new understanding of the value of mercy and who needs it. Gollum, Frodo himself, and probably everybody in Middle-earth. Or here's another example. You know the book, I'm sure. How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Wait a minute. The Grinch is on a quest? Sure. Here's the setup. One. Our quester, a grumpy, cave-dwelling creature who's had it up to here with the noise, celebration, and general happiness of Christmas. Two, a place to go, from his mountaintop cave to the village of Whoville far below. Three, a stated reason to go there, to steal every Christmas present, tree, and bit of decoration he can lay his hands on. Four, challenges and trials, a risky sleigh trip down the mountain, considerable effort packing up the Christmas presents and trimmings, an encounter with a two-year-old girl who puts all the Grinch's efforts in peril simply by asking a question, and a painfully difficult trip back up the mountain with an overloaded sleigh. Five, the real reason to go. To learn what Christmas actually means. To have his shriveled heart expand back to its proper size, or even bigger, and to find genuine happiness. Once you get the hang of it, you can see how How the Grinch Stole Christmas follows the conventions of a quest tale. So does Lord of the Rings, Huckleberry Finn, Star Wars, Holes, and most other stories of someone going somewhere and doing something, especially if the going and the doing weren't the protagonist's idea in the first place. There are a couple additional paragraphs in the end of the chapter, but they sort of just set up the rest of the book and aren't necessary to our purposes here. But the author states that a quest is made of five things. Number one, a quester. Number two, a place to go. Three, a stated reason to go there. Four, challenges and trials along the way. And five, 
a real reason to go there. Now, I don't know about you, and if you know since you're listening to this podcast that I'm probably going to make some attempt to connect what he is talking about in this chapter with the Bible, and you would be absolutely correct. And so maybe you've already begun to imagine what that connection might be. But here's the point that I would like to make. He says that the real reason for the quest is never the same as the stated reason. More often than not, the quester fails at the stated task. The real reason then for a quest is always self-knowledge. And in the weeks to come in this podcast, I plan to show you a few clear examples, one in which that will help shape the way you read the Bible in a very powerful way, but that is that every single thing in the Bible is ultimately a stated reason. Um, we know we are the quester, or humanity is the quester, or Israel as a nation is the quester, or its king is the quester. He or they are given a task, a place to go, a place to live, a way to live, um, a stated reason to do so, to bring honor to God, to bless the world, so on and so forth, to work the ground and to keep it, to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to be God's representative rulers over the creation. These are all the quest, the quester, and a stated reason to do so. So Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation so that through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is the stated reason. Now, number four in this example of what a quest is made of is incredibly helpful. It's what gives the Bible its dynamic engagement with the reader. And that is challenges and trials that surface along the way. When Israel is called by God to be his covenant people and Abraham is told that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed, that is the stated reason for the quest. That's the stated reason for God coming to Abram and promising to give him a son. But if you keep that image in mind, that stated reason to go somewhere, a place to go, and a person to be the one to go there, if you keep that in mind as you read the entire book of Genesis, when you come to the very opening chapter of the book of Exodus, we are faced with a tremendous challenge and trial along the way. And that is that the Lord God has blessed Abram such that his family is growing to over 70 members. His family is expanding rapidly, and yet they find themselves enslaved in Egypt where they are not only not being a blessing to the nations, they aren't even receiving blessing themselves. And so all along the way, the Israelites trying to flourish and thrive in the promised land, God appointing a king because the people want one, and yet they find that there are giants in the land and opposing the people of God in the form of Goliaths from Gath or in the form of idolatrous worship of the nation's gods sprinkled throughout the promised land. There are always challenges and trials along the way which circles back around to point number five, the real reason to go there. And I think what is happening in these stories, what makes literature so gripping, what makes stories and novels and, and things of this sort so powerful and longstanding in the tradition of 
mankind is that we see glimpses of ourselves through these difficulties, through these challenges. We love to see people come to a new understanding of who they are because the goal of redemption isn't just that we would be able to fulfill the task that God has called us to, but that we realize we need more help from him than many of us realize. And if there is probably an additional pitfall that I could add to the way that people often read the Bible, it is this. Many, many Christians mean well, but they almost read the Bible as as being merely the stated reason for the quest. They they almost read the Bible as if it is simply a, a record of God's expectations of man, love God, love neighbor, and then that is the extent of it. So you better go out and love God and love neighbor. Or you need to pray continually, so I'm going to pray continually. Or you need to meditate on God's law day and night, so I'm going to meditate on God's law day and night. And it becomes this task that oftentimes means we are going to avoid the challenges and trials that we will inevitably face along the way because many, many people unconsciously are not prepared to receive the real reason to go on the quest. Yes, the real reason, a real reason is that we would be men and women who pray more. We would be men and women who meditate on God's law day and night. We would be people and a church and Christians who are prepared to be God's means through which the world is blessed. This is true. But if we do not receive self-knowledge, If we do not come to understand who we are in relation to who God is, then our purpose for going along these quests will almost always fall short. Now, this idea of gaining or obtaining self-knowledge is not some new idea. This is about as old as the Christian faith itself. Um, Augustine wrote in the Confessions, Around 8400, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? And then he prayed, grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. And then St. Teresa of Avila wrote in The Way of Perfection, almost all problems in the spiritual life stem from a lack of self-knowledge. Or even John Calvin in 1530 wrote in the opening of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. And this is something for me personally that is somewhat new. And I actually wrote a short article for our local newspaper um, last March, in fact, so just one year ago. And um, I'd actually like to read it for you here. It is not long, and I know I've already read you a portion of something, but it, it is the clearest way I've been able to express in words what I'm talking about when it comes to this self-knowledge. And part of this is a personal reflection, almost like a journal entry, but it's also something that I think in general will grasp why it is 
that the real reason to go on a quest, the real reason to pursue God, the real reason, what we will find out about ourselves along the way, and what we will find out about ourselves in attempting to follow Jesus is something that will be both profound and very, very life-changing. And so here is um, a little entry that I gave for a newspaper, and this will wrap up our podcast for this week. The title is Knowing Versus Denying Yourself. Reading Jesus' words in Mark 8 this week piqued my curiosity. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What is the relationship between knowing yourself, uh, learning to accept the self God made you to be, and Jesus' command to deny yourself? When Jesus tells us to deny ourselves, is he telling us not to be ourselves? At the very least, we know that among the things Jesus calls his followers to deny are the sinful parts about themselves. Let us take, for example, someone who deals with control, but does not know that he gravitates toward control. This is a real part of who he is, the real him, if you will, but he simply does not know it about himself. Question, can he deny that part of himself in any meaningful sense? No, he cannot. Why? Because he does not yet own that as a part of himself. You cannot deny what you do not know you have. You cannot put to death what you do not know is, th- is alive. And I do not mean in general, I mean alive in you. For years, I did not understand this. I understood that to know God was eternal life. Jesus himself said so in John seventeen three. So I devoted my life to knowing him, reading scripture, praying, studying, etc., And I knew that we were called to deny ourselves, die to self, be crucified with Christ. Verbs that communicated to me that who I really was was not all that important. Yes, God loved me, but he really wanted me to be like Jesus, not like myself. And so I never paid any attention to who I really was. Now, do not mishear me. I still paid plenty of attention to myself. I've always been an introspective, self-focused type of person. I just did not pay any attention to the things about me that drove that type of behavior. I did not understand myself, i.e., I did not know myself. But, and here's the bottom line, insofar as I did not know myself, I could not deny myself. I could not deny what I did not know was there. I could not put to death what I did not know was alive, and to the extent that I could not put to death those parts of myself, those same parts could never be brought back to life again by Jesus. And so they never were. I would just hunker down and try my hardest not to be selfish, not to be unkind, not to be impatient. And all the while, yep, you guessed it, I continued being selfish, unkind, and impatient. Why? Because knowing that selfishness, unkindness, and impatience were wrong made it hard for me to willingly embrace and admit that they perfectly described my life. But to ignore this fact made it impossible for Jesus to impact me in those places. And so I continued to find no new life there. I had left Jesus out of the equation and as a result could not draw on his resurrection life at all for love 
kindness or patience. At the root of the problem was this. I had no self-knowledge. I did not know the real me and therefore could not deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus. I did not think knowing myself made all that much of a difference, but it made all the difference in the world. I had been trying to relate with God in relationship. That was the point, right? Sure, but you cannot get to know another person if you do not first know yourself. And so it comes to this. You cannot deny yourself if you do not first know yourself. You cannot deny what you don't know is there. And so what you and I need is to rightly know ourselves. A humble self-knowledge is a surer way to God than a search after deep learning, said Thomas Akempis. And he's absolutely right. The quest is what we are after. We are questers. So is all humanity. So is the nation of Israel. The stated reason to go on the quest is met with obstacles, trials, and difficulties so that through it all, the real reason for the quest, the discovery of self-knowledge, the discovery of who God is, the discovery of how much we need Him and how living in perfect submission to Him is the way to ultimately become human once again and the way to fulfill the greatest task that He's ever called us to. And that is to be His image bearers who properly reflect His loving kindness and care over the world in the way that we choose to rule it. And so that's all the time we have for today. My prayer for you is that God will lead you this week in exploring and discovering self-knowledge. That self-awareness would become something at the front of your heart and your mind and that the Spirit of God would use His Word, would use other believers, would use even, amazingly if possible, even this podcast to push you toward Him, to reveal to you the real reason for the quest, His deep love for you, and His commitment to transform you very much so into the likeness and image of Jesus. But it begins when we are willing to open ourselves up, to see all that is in us, to lay down our defenses that prevent us from allowing God to meet us and reach us in the deep places, and to be willing to see all that is in us because He truly has come to set us free. So I'm excited that you are still tuning into the podcast. I hope that you are finding these helpful I continue to hear periodically from numbers of you who share with me episodes that you've loved and things that have helped you, and I, I'm thankful for you. When you do that, that reminds me that this is, this is really for all of you. This has really been helpful for me, too, as I've worked through lots of these themes and thoughts myself. Um, I am in this process with you and am excited to continue learning new things, which are the very things I choose to share with you week in and week out. So until next time. Have a great week.